Hey, today is April 2nd, 2018, and you're listening to Human Factors Cast, episode 84. Today on the show, we're talking about New York City's cybersecurity tools, the hazards of the Internet of Things, more developments with Disney's human-robot interaction research, and much, much more. If you got a sweet tooth, I have good news. Human Factors Cast starts right now. Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for all things human factors, psychology, and design. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome, joined today, as always, by Mr. Blake Arnsdorf. What's up, everybody? Nick, how are you doing today? I feel oh, like I haven't seen you in a while. Uh, I know. Well, is that sarcasm? Because we just saw each other earlier today. This is it's it's weird. Can we can we say what's going on, or or do you want to let that one hang? Let's let it hang. We'll let it hang for now. We saw each other earlier. There's stuff going on. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> Blake, you're back from Boston. Uh, so. I, I want to hear more about your trip to Boston really quick. I, but before we before we talk about your trip to Boston and all the banter stuff, I just want to say uh, to those of you just joining us, uh, this is your first episode. Welcome. Or if you're just joining on from some of the bonus episodes that we dropped at the uh, health symposium, healthcare symposium last week. Welcome. We're glad to have you. Um, to those of you who don't know, Blake and I dropped a couple bonus episodes last week f- uh, for coverage for the healthcare symposium. We had a special guest on, Elise Hallett, who went through some of her experiences at the Healthcare Symposium. Really great topics and, and kind of an interesting uh, sort of overview of, of just a couple different panels that Blake and Elise went to last week. But it's definitely interesting if, if, you're, if you're thinking about going to one of these colleges or conferences, if you're, if you're uh, just getting out there into the field and you're not quite sure where to go to, uh, check out these resources because some of our bonus episodes kind of cover what you can expect there. I mean, there's a lot of sort of networking that goes on at these events, but the content itself in these panels, are, it's also pretty entertaining too. So uh, go check those out. But Blake, you're back from Boston. How was Boston? How was all your travel last week and all that stuff? Lots of good times in Boston. It was it was just a great city. It's somewhere I'd never been before. And even though it was cold, I totally loved every second of it i could use a little change of pace for you know this beautiful sunshine we get every day in san diego but really just awesome people and fell in love with the city in general but nick as you know when you travel you see lots of awesome designs and also some gnarly ones too so i I don't know about you guys if you've ever really had issues with air on air entertainment or not but one thing that always drives me insane is when airplane entertainment systems have the controls built into the actual armrest. Oh, because... I think that's cool. Why, why do you why do you not like that? Oh, okay. Well, so if it's built in, and I have a tendency to you know use the armrest, seeing as they are armrests, I was continually shifting channels and changing the volume and doing all sorts of gnarliness to <laughs> the actual, are affecting the actual entertainment system okay. the entire time during the flight. Okay, I can so see. So maybe that. that's just an artifact of me play, just using my armrest too much. But I don't know, Nick. You said you like those. See, okay. So let me let me let me walk back a little bit. So I, I I never said that I I haven't used them before, right? So in concept, I like the idea. I like because I I hate like bringing my arm out in front of me and touching the screen or whatever to to navigate those displays. But if it was on right on my arm, it's almost like holding a controller uh, in your hand. Now. 
I get your complaints. Now, what if they had like some sort of solution where they had a little door, like those old ashtrays, you know, where it kind of folds over the controls so that way you don't accidentally touch anything, but you can access them quickly if you need to? Yeah, that's totally better because, I mean, the option or the thing you bring up about touching the screen in front of you, well, like the haptics on them are not very good. So you're just basically banging the back of the head of the passenger in front of you. Right. Which I don't like to do that either. And, and I have seen different sets of these like armrest controls designed kind of similar to what you're talking about. But these were just four little buttons that were right where my elbow was, where I would, you know, put down to kind of prop myself up to sleep. So that's really kind of all I experienced. Travel was good overall. The trip was great. So, Nick, what have you been up to this week? So I was hoping to report on uh, Ready Player One. Um, haven't seen it yet, but I do have to talk about MoviePass. Now, I mentioned to you earlier about MoviePass, and you didn't know what it was. No, I had no idea. I oh. had an inkling of what it might be. Okay, so let me let me kind of break this down. And MoviePass has been under scrutiny over the last couple months. Um, there's this whole controversy of uh, it's an app on your phone. Well, okay, first let me let me get into what it is, and then I'll get into the controversy, and then I'll talk about the usability of this damn thing. So basically, what MoviePass is is if you think about Netflix, but for movie theaters, it's kind of like that, where you pay a monthly subscription fee. And you are able to go to one movie a day. And uh, how they make money? Well, they sell your data. That's that's a thing, I guess. I I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of... People do that? What's that? People do that? People do that. And you know what? I, I mean, I guess I've kind of resigned to the idea because, honestly, people are going to sell my data anyway. And I go to enough movies to where it's worth it. So, okay, so here's the thing. They've been under this scrutiny for sort of taking your data... But not just while you're at the movie theater. They sort of take your data before you go to the movie theater, after you leave the movie theater, and kind of build a profile around who you are. And people don't like that. So what they've done is they've lowered the monthly cost. And of course, I'm a sucker. And I was like, sure, why not sell my data? So let me get into sort of how this thing works. Basically, the way this app works is you go to a movie theater, or, or you kind of pick a movie and say, I want to go to see whatever movie. Let's say it's Black Panther or something for the second time. Uh, and you go into the MoviePass app and, and you basically click on the thing. You have to pick a showtime. It has to be the day that, to, like, it has to be today, the day that you're going. It has to be today. Um, so, like, let's say I want one for 6.45 p.m. I have to be within 100 feet of the movie theater. And then it will then load this credit card with enough money to buy a ticket. And then I basically pay with that credit card and I don't see a dollar of it. It just takes care of it under the hood. Um, but I, I want to talk about the usability of this thing because it's so clunky. And they've started sort of introducing these whole um, buy ahead uh, tickets. But I, I feel like I just think the whole thing kind of suffers from not being able to sort of reserve your own ticket. And I get it. They don't want to lose too much money off this thing. Cause honestly the, the monthly cost is about the cost of Netflix. And if uh, you know, you see two, one movie a month, you're basically making your money back. So I don't know, man. Yeah. I mean, we were talking a little bit about that, a little bit about that earlier. I mean, the money aspect of it, cause it just sounds too good to be true. But now like you talking about the fact that it's gotta be on the day of, and there's no real reserving tickets 
beforehand i kind of see how they're getting away with it but still like at the cost range it just seems like a no-brainer but you you had some issues with the usability of the app right yeah i mean i guess it, it wasn't so much the usability just i mean yes it was the usability it was the, it's just clunky it's clunky when you want to just go see a movie and like I like, let's say I want to go see the new Pacific Rim movie. It it kind of sucks because I can't say you know what are is this theater going to be sold out? Probably not. Uh, it's not been getting the best reviews, but you know, like I just don't have that peace of mind. Like if I go, is it is it going to be open? Uh, am I going to be able to get tickets? It's just kind of sucky that I have to be within a hundred feet of the movie theater to actually buy the tickets. Yeah, that that's that's kind of a bummer. So you, so wait, you have to literally be within a hundred feet of that place before you can even purchase a ticket. Correct. You can. You have to be within a hundred feet. Your your phone double checks your location, and um, it basically says, "Yep, you're nearby." I'm gonna go ahead and load that credit card that we gave you with uh, enough money to buy your ticket, and you buy your ticket with the credit card that they give you, and then that's it. Interesting. So so. I know I'm kind of digging into this, but I'm trying to figure out how how this is good for people like outside of it just being cheap. I mean, are you able to if you're let's say I'm in within 100 feet of a movie theater before the time that I'm actually going to see the film. Can I buy tickets for like a later time in the day? Yes. So let's say okay. let's say, yeah, like let's say I'm out and about. Right. And I'm walking by a movie theater or whatever. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to be here later. I'm just going to buy it now. So, yeah, I can I can go there early in the morning. Uh, I could presumably do it in the middle of the night, although I don't know. Um, I think I think you have some sort of time period to actually buy the movie. I think you have like 15 minutes. So you pick the thing and then from the time you check in on the app, you have 15 minutes to buy it. So if there's like a kiosk out front or something, I guess, you know, or you wait in line or whatever and, and you buy it. But I, I don't know, man, like this, this whole thing feels clunky to me. And I, I guess, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm giving it a test drive. I'm seeing how I feel about it because like we see enough movies to where it's kind of worth it for us. But again, like there's some usability things that I'm gonna have to overlook now, like for the, like the Han Solo movie next month, I won't be able to do it because uh, I want to make sure I have seats for opening night. And, uh, you know, you can't do it at a time and you can't pick your seats and all that stuff. So it's like, I guess it kind of evens out. I don't know, man. Like I, it's just something that we just on the fly decided to do. And, and uh, yeah, but you know, on the, on the flip side, it's kind of like bad movie insurance. You know, there are a lot of movies that we'd go out and see if, if uh, we knew we wouldn't be spending money on it and in a way we are, but at the same time, it's like, it's the same, whether we see this movie or not, we're still paying the same amount. So let's go see this bad movie and, you know, laugh at it or something. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense to me. I, some of the weird logistical things of having to be like a hundred feet within the, within the area, but the cost just like cuts all that down and makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's, it's worth trying. Like you said, with bad movie insurance, I honestly like to go see horrible films uh, just, just for a laugh. Uh, but going to the movie theater is way too expensive to really do that anymore. Uh, so this would be kind of a, a nice little interlude to be able to go back to the movies. Cause we talked a little about this, a little about this earlier, but I, I still love going to the movie theaters and I hope that that concept really never goes away. Uh, but it is just way too expensive to do super often. Yeah, I agree. So maybe maybe here's what we do. You get a movie pass, and then we'll go and see a couple movies, and it'll be fun. And I think we can talk about it on the show. 
How about yeah. that? Yeah. Yes. I like, I like it. All right, man. Well, you know what? We got we got a lot of stuff this week. Why don't we start talking about stuff? So first off, uh, our community shout outs. I, I want to welcome. We got a lot of new people in our Slack this week. So thank you. Thank you. Th- thank you to Isaac, Kevin, Elise, and Angelica for joining the Human Factors Cast Slack channel. Welcome. We're glad to have you. If you guys, if you're just tuning in, welcome. Uh, like I said earlier, you can join us on our Slack as well. Our link is in the show notes, um, as well as the uh, Twitters and all the other internet things that I'm really bad at. We're pretty much everywhere. So you can find uh that link to our Slack, pretty much wherever you can find us. Um, in addition to that, I want to shout out our Patreon refresh. We talked about this last week. We made some big changes to our Patreon to make it a little bit more worth it for you guys to, to help support us. Um, we want to make sure you're getting something out of it too. So uh, you can go check out our new tiers. We got access to our show notes. We got access to VIP events uh, and even an additional podcast that Blake and I are recording. So uh, do go check those out. Uh, we would greatly appreciate it. Uh, I want to plug some events before we get into the news. So we got the Computer Human Interaction Conference in Montreal, Canada. Kai, that is happening from April 23rd to the 26th. That is this month. Wow. Uh, We're going to have some bonus episodes from there with our field correspondent, Woodrow. Uh, He's been on the show a couple times. You might recognize his voice. We got HFES International in Philly this year. Uh, That's going to be October 1st through the 5th. And then we have HFES Australia, and that's going to be in Perth. Uh, That's from uh, the... 26th of November to the 28th of November. So if you're around any of those places or planning on going, let us know. Uh, we'll have coverage on a couple of them, hopefully all of them. Definitely Kai and uh, the annual HFES conference. And and uh, please reach out to us if you're going to either of those. We'd love to connect with you guys and, and potentially meet up. So um, you know what, Blake? Let's We've, we've uh, beat around the bush a little bit. Let's just get into the news. All right, this is the part of the show all about Human Factors News. This is where we talk about everything related to the field of Human Factors. Now, this could be anything from medical, transportation, psychology, whatever it is, as long as it relates to the field of Human Factors, it is fair game. Blake, what do we got up first this week? Oh, man. So after a week of harrowing city-level cyber attacks, New York is taking some precautions. So Mayor Bill de Blasio just announced that the city will introduce a suite of cybersecurity cybersecurity tools to protect residents against malicious online activity focusing on mobile device safety. The app suite is called NYC Secure, and it alerts smartphone users to potential threats on their devices, offering tips for how to stay secure, such as disconnecting from a malicious Wi-Fi network or even navigating from a compromised website or uninstalling a malicious app. The app will actually not actively take these steps on its own. Users will have to heed the advice that's presented to them. And NYC Secure will also, as a little cherry on top, not collect or transmit any personal identifying information or private data. Now, Nick, myself being the cynic, this last line was really what I was concerned about, especially in the wake of all of this stuff going on with Cambridge Analytics and um, and Facebook and things like that. And we've talked a lot about cybersecurity on the show. But like uh, one of our listeners in Slack, Brian mentioned, this is really a great move and I think a awesome, you know, kind of public service. And I, I think this kind of sets the may set a trend that we'll see across different cities throughout the U.S. I certainly hope so. I mean, we talked about this on the show back way back when uh, we were talking about what 2016 HFES. 
Like th- there's a big focus on cybersecurity and, and um, you know, people just, we need to be more aware of some of these phishing attempts and whatnot. And this is a step in the right direction. Like, like you said, Brian said, uh, <laughs> I mean, this, this definitely has uh, sort of the good intentions, uh, but I'm, I'm wondering sort of what that's going to mean for people, citizens of New York city, right? Does, what kind of what kind of effects will this have on them? Like, what what are they going to see? The, is it just an app that sort of uh, interrupts their normal workflow of doing sort of like connecting to public Wi-Fi networks or like like what does it look like? Is what I'm curious about. Yeah, no, I think it just is an app that you download into your phone, and I'm assuming it just would run in the background at all times, like a like a lot of native apps do. Um, so, but I'm not exactly sure what it would look like. And you bring up a great point about what is it, how does it interact with the user while they're doing something? But I'm assuming it's probably going to just, you know, give you some kind of notification like, hey, the Wi-Fi network you connected to is uh, malicious. You, better, you should get off of there. Um, it, it might, I don't know, even if it is clunky, I think the information that it should be providing people will be worth the, the maybe some of the strange interactions or anything uh, odd about the UI just because, I mean, I think this is just something that most people would want on their phone regardless of it of it specific citywide because i always worry about using you know wi-fi networks inside of airports or at hotels or any of that stuff uh, and i get pretty paranoid about it and I, you never really know what can be taken off your phone i mean it's it's just last week a good friend of mine said that he had been in a hotel and using stuff on on their wi-fi and he had his identity stolen so i mean being able to prevent that kind of stuff uh, would be great, but I w- hopefully we'll see screenshots or at least maybe if we have any listeners in New York, they can send us some some shots of what this may look like. Yeah, that'd be great. And also, I wonder if there's any sort of um, any sort of limitations on whether or not you have to be a New York citizen. Um, you know, can can I download this living here in California? And uh, will it have the same thing, or is it is it tailored to New York City? Did they take an index of all these public Wi-Fi networks and rated them, and it's very tailored towards the city? I'm curious, right? Because if not, then you can take this and basically push it anywhere and have anyone benefit from it rather than just the city of New York. But I definitely think it is a step in the right direction. I think there is this sort of consciousness that this is an issue and we need to fix it and as little as a step as pushing out an app to to uh citizens i think you know and there's no sort of uh there's no sort of way to ensure that the the people of the citizens of new york uh install this app or even find the efficacy of the app to be uh, you know if you know what I'm trying to say here. Wow, it's been a long day. <laughs> yeah, I, and I I have to agree with you. I hope that because I'm assuming it's a combination of two things when we're talking about this application that it it probably is localized to specific Wi-Fi networks as to what makes them malicious or not. And so maybe it being like only only downloadable in NYC makes sense for that aspect. But what I'm a little bit more interested in is in is uh, like how they're making judgments on compromised websites and also malicious apps because i mean even if you take away the wi-fi network part that's pretty valuable just to the everyday person regardless of you're in new york or anywhere around the world so i don't know great 
job on everybody's part that was a part of building this application for just cybersecurity in general. Hopefully, we see more of this coming out either citywide or just um, for, or just cybersecurity apps in general. It's a first step to a lot of uh, more measures that need to be taken for sure. All right, why don't we jump into this next story? All right, so keeping along with the internet. So there's been an increase in the number of consumer products with a connection to the internet that can transmit or receive data, upload or download operating software or firmware, and even communicate with other internet-connected devices. This internet connectivity within and among products holds the promise of many benefits for consumers. However, internet connectivity is also capable of introducing a potential for harm, so or what they call a hazard. So where none of this existed before, where none of this existed before when this before this internet connection was established. So the consumer hazards that could conceivably be created from the internets of things devices include things like fire, burn, shock, tripping or falling, laceration, contusion, the, the list goes on. And to this end, the U.S. Consumer Public Safety Commission is conducting a public hearing to address the potential safety issues related to internet-connected or IoT consumer products. The information received from these public hearings will be used to inform the the commission's future risk management work that they go on to do. Uh, so just to give people a heads up, and Nick, if you had a different point on this, please hop in. But basically, this is going to happen in May. Uh I think it's on May 16th. And this just really allows you to have a voice in what's going on in terms of regulation for hazards with internets of internet of things, consumer products. Now, just to be clear, this has nothing to do with cybersecurity or the, the, the security of your actual personal data. This is related to specifically hazards. So these are more physical problems. Like, like I mentioned, fire burns, tripping, like how all of these internet connected devices that we use at all the times are kind of introducing different kinds of pains in our environment. Well, I think, so you mentioned that it's not cybersecurity, but I, I argue that it is uh, a little bit of cybersecurity there because, I mean, they illustrate in this sort of outline here a couple different scenarios, right? Like devices may be compromised or malfunction and display unexpected operating conditions, uh, like like an, a Roomba speeding around your house much faster than what's safe, right? Or think about this, right? A stovetop or grill being hacked and then you being used to remotely start a fire and murder uh, an unaware homeowner, right? So there are a couple different scenarios in which you can understandably connect this to cybersecurity. And the fact that they're having a hearing on this and, and sort of debating how to tackle this safety is again an, an important step it hasn't happened yet but you know I, I think there's a lot of value to come out of these talks where you know and, and we've talked about this over the last couple of weeks too we we don't fully understand implications of things that we're making and it's kind of biting us in the ass sometimes you know like the whole Cambridge Analytica shit we'll talk about that later but there's like a lot going on right and or, or even the, the 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 Strava data. There's there's so much stuff that we have unintended consequences of, and it's important to get to the left of this stuff. And I think this is just another sort of example of getting to the left of the Internet of Things. I mean, it's already in in our homes, so it's not as to the left as it could be, but it's definitely a step in the right direction. Well, it certainly is because when we when we, if we'll revisit the Strava thing for a moment, I mean, a lot of that was 
covered or a lot of the reason that Strava was kind of safe in this particular situation was because of the legal clauses they had built into their own contractual obligations with people's data. So I think this kind of fits in perfectly here because, I mean, one of the what is it? One of the specific things this hearing is going to look at or the CPSC is looking to address is kind of how you can eliminate hazardous conditions at all from being potentially designed intentionally or without sufficient consideration. So really trying to build a real process around how you assess what kind of data you're collecting, how it could be potentially used, how the actual like physical UI maybe comes together and what implications that has. I just, I think it's good to have this kind of separate third party party body that's coming out and being able to help with this kind of regulation. Cause I think with within companies and this is, this is going to sound worse than it is, but they're much more in the cover their own ass situation, regardless of what they actually build. They just want to make sure that whatever happens legally, that they won't be responsible completely. Not saying that every company does that, but as we've seen already with a few, uh, it does happen, especially reg- with regard to personal data. So I'm glad that these guys are hopping in and also looking for more of a public forum to kind of discuss this. Yeah, just I'm going to send us off the rails here already. And we're only like half an hour in Uh third party body definitely sounds like a, a cover band. <laughs> <laughs> it might be, but okay, let me, I, I want to talk about a couple more of these sort of implications, Blake, because honestly they're, they're, these kind of scare me when, when you think about uh, sort of, what you can do with these things, right? Okay, think about home safety systems, right? If they're compromised, uh, either purposely through hackers or accidentally through some sort of failed software update, right? There, there has to be some sort of safety measures um, in place to stop things like smoke alarms or motion detectors from failing and opening people up to those hazards, right? Yeah, I mean, you've got to build some kind of you know safety measure in there to try and deal with that. Uh, and, and that's something I, ne- I really didn't think about is the connected home aspect of all this and how much danger you're potentially and not to not to scare anybody, but how much dan- danger you could potentially be in if somebody's not really paying attention to how they design these products. OK, I'm going to uh, you don't want to scare people. I want to scare people. So how about this next point? What if what if sex toys? We have like Internet connected sex toys now that that could potentially be hacked and remotely controlled. Uh, which would Ugh. which would make a ton of new questions arise about consent, right? Like, it's really scary stuff once you think about everything that could possibly be connected. So, yeah, it's important that they're talking about this stuff. Oh, most definitely, yeah. I mean, I didn't. That was an or an application that I really wouldn't have thought of, to be completely honest. So, I mean, that's you do bring up a great point, though. I mean, what what happens with consent now because we're, we're talking about you know an entire uh, a hacking of, of a system and then creating different scenarios where now now it's like nobody has any control and we're doing this all over the internet so where's the responsibility lie that's that's a really interesting kind of philosophical philosophy, philosophy conundrum maybe <laughs> i got one more for you okay imagine all the data that's being collected on you even when you're not home that is a lot of data that you can build a profile around a person. And back to the Strava thing, if that data got out, you could tell who's home and who's not, depending on what what devices are being activated at what times. So there's there's a lot of 
implications here with the Internet of Things, and it's good that we're thinking about this stuff. I'm just going to go ahead and say it's we're it's good that we're thinking about this. Oh, most definitely, yeah. I mean, we you really couldn't. I don't know if if we're going to go so far, and I mean, I think technology is progressing so quickly in the Internet of Things. I feel like that that buzzword just appeared over the last couple of years, but it's, it's really important to start hammering this kind of stuff out. And I'm, again, I know it sounds like a, a, a cover band, but I'm glad some kind of third party government observatory commission is trying to at least regulate some of this or get the conversation started with community. Third party body. All right. Well, are you scared? Because that's okay. We'll, we'll bring it back. We got, we got a nice fun story next to it's, it's still connected devices, but it's still fun. But before we get there, I want to thank all of our friends over at the federal register, engineering and technology, CNBC, Disney research, and TechCrunch for all of our stories this week. If you guys want to follow along with us, you can follow us in our Slack uh, for links to the original articles. We also post those all over social media. So please, please, please join us. Join the discussion in our Slack because that's the best place to find it. Uh, okay, Blake, let's get into this fun story because I like this. Yeah, I was super scared and this is going to make me and everyone else feel better. So researchers at Tufts University in Massachusetts have developed a tooth mounted sensor which can transmit live data to a smartphone in order to track the nutritional content of the food that you're consuming. So health apps like MyFitnessPal track what you eat. Tracking what you eat are increasingly popular, but these apps require users to manually enter details about caloric intake and nutrients based on their own estimates. So this is often resulting in inaccurate records or suboptimal recommendations based on the data you're inputting. To more accurately track what we put inside our bodies, users can sport a wearable tooth sensor which sits inside the mouth, monitoring the wearer's intake of glucose, salt, and alcohol. Nick, all I have to say about this one is whenever it comes out that they're going to release these, if they do, because I know it's it's a research project at Tufts University, I will be the first one in line to put one in my mouth because this sounds like a great thing to have. Can I, I'm going to oh, – I really want to soundbite that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to soundbite that. Is that okay? I'm going to be the first in line to put this thing in my mouth. Uh, oh, goodness. <laughs> All right. No, we'll keep it PC here. We'll keep it PG on the show. Um, no, look, this is this is awesome. I love this idea. I'm right there with you. I want to put this thing in my mouth. You can soundbite me too, because this technology is going to make it super easy to track. Because you and I, we we talked about sort of uh, diet before and, and sort of how to track, you know, your macronutrients and, and all this stuff. And this just makes it so much easier, right? If you just have something passively absorbing this information, this is going to revolutionize the way we intake uh, food because now people can, can uh, or, or at least with this technology, the promise is there that we can keep a better track of what goes into our system and, and, you know, there's no sort of BSing about it. It's there, right? Whereas if you're on my fitness pal or something, you can fudge the entry and be like, eh, well, I only had this many grams of whatever, but really I had a couple more bites that I didn't track, you know, but this, this is, this is awesome. Yeah. This is like a no fooling way to really get at what, what you're consuming. But I think what I like about it the most, and I'm glad that you brought up the the dieting stuff is something Nick and I have talked about both on the podcast a little bit and offline a bunch is the ketogenic diet, right? And something I'm really into is personalized nutrition. And I think this really helps you get there because, you know, everybody's macros for certain intakes and what, you, what results you're looking for, or what changes in your body you're looking to have uh, really depend on 
each really depend from person to person. And something like this, where it's really tracking specifically what you're intaking and giving you more accurate readouts about maybe what's in it calor- in a caloric value or different types of things, um, would really help you hone in. Like, okay, so today I felt really energetic. Here's all the things that I ate and the amounts that I ate them. And this is kind of what my body was doing. I, I don't know. I think this is definitely like a starting point for sure. Cause this, I'm not really sure, not completely understanding how this is going to track some of these, some of the intakes, intake things like glucose levels and stuff like that. Um, but I, I can see the future here and this is a great step forward. Yeah. Yeah. I I'm definitely on board for this type of future. <laughs> I mean, Okay, let's let's scare everybody again though cuz this is okay, this, this theoretically would be a connected device. What kind of data are you giving people when you do this? You're you are keying people into the types of foods that you eat. So you're susceptible to targeted advertisements. That's kind of a given for any internet device, right? If you talk in your own home with a with a listening device, you can pretty much assume that that stuff will be uh, targeted ads. But um, think about this. If you go to a certain restaurant a lot and it tracks that, then it'll you'll probably see more targeted ads. Now, what if you could hack that? Well, I don't know what kind of damage that could cause, but it's fun to speculate. And by fun, I mean like it's a it's an issue that we have to consider. Well, I mean, let's let's get real weird if we're gonna bother getting weird. I mean, this, let's do it. This is in, this is in your mouth, so it's it's interacting with your saliva, and probably have to taking some amount of readings from it to differentiate like what you've just put in your mouth. Again, don't completely understand the underlying mechanisms that make this work, but it wouldn't be too hard to say that it can capture maybe some some specifics potentially about your DNA. Somebody took that. How could they use that against you? Not particularly sure, uh, but you never know. As as you know, as, as technology grows, we're also seeing developments in things like biomechanics and bioengineering um, within the medical field. So the, the abstracting of this kind of data could have potentially scary implications, especially if somebody can understand your you know your DNA makeup based off of what you're putting in your mouth. Yeah. Hey, quick note. Uh, it sounds like your uh, connection's loose over there. Um, but yeah, I agree. I I don't know if a device like this would be able to um, collect DNA samples. I, I feel like that's a pretty specialized tool, although who knows if you built it into this. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, I can see that too. But uh, all right. What do, you, what do you say we get into our second to last story of the week? I like Let's this one. Let's do it. All right, so Disney's research team is back at it once again, bringing us more research all about proposed interactions between humans and robots. So this current study presents exploratory user studies of human-to-robot handovers, examining how changes in robot behavior influence human participation in the overall interaction. And overall, the team found that as users learn to predict robot behavior over time, becoming more familiar with their behaviors and their movements, they become more trusting of the robot's ability to receive objects or hand over objects. So these results are definitely exciting as they help help us to better define criteria to help robots become a more trusted partner in these kind of collaborative tasks. Now, Nick, I'm really glad that you picked this story because I had not one, I one, I had not seen this website before that is basically Disney research researches website. And they put out what looked like to me as a pretty much a scientific white paper based on this idea of human to robot handovers. 
Yeah, so we've actually covered a couple other things on Disney Research before. Um, but yeah, this one this one's really interesting to me because it especially goes into sort of how robot posture and movement affects how we as humans interact with them, right? And it all comes down to sort of this handover piece that uh, that we're talking about in this specific article. Now, uh, there's there's a lot of research being done on trust in robots uh, because a, a lot of people have fear that they're going to take our jobs, which is true. They are absolutely going to do that. But they can also help us in our jobs and they can also help us in our everyday lives. And the fact that there is some research being done about how we interact with these things is very promising for sort of future builds, I guess. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's funny because since I was in grad school, I mean, I've, we, I've interacted with this concept of trust first trust and automation with automated tools, kind of working with air traffic controllers and integrating into their own suite of tools, automated things to kind of help them make decisions. And now we're talking about more, of not just kind of automation, but also something else that's in your environment that you have to get used to. And now it's not a human, it's something else you're collaborating with. Often in, in these cases of, especially this particular research project, something that doesn't look human or normal to you. It's like a giant, in this case, I think it's mainly a giant arm in which the, in which like a human would be kind of giving over an object to it for it to do the next part of a task. But I think studies like this, really have a large implications like both in kind of this can the more you know industrial sphere where it's more important to have a lot of safety and trust in the agents that you're working with but from disney's point of view i can see how this would be very important to them because now we're i would think this abstracts into something going on in a park where maybe it's potentially now a robot arm interacting with a child so now the the level of safety has to be even that much higher yeah, but I mean, it doesn't just have to be towards Disney, right? This could be some sort of um, this. This could lead to some best practices, right? So, uh, for this human robot interaction, where you have perhaps workers in a factory where uh, robots hand them items, right? Or, or potentially like robots that will eventually clear our tables in restaurants. Like, there's, there's, you know, this this. Um, this concept of being able to operate with the knowledge that they won't be able to, or they won't be producing any unwanted anxiety by the humans that are operating nearby. And we've seen other things like this too, tying it back to some other news stories that we talked about, like um, the technology where the robot actually operates around the human in that safe zone. I forget what the exact research was, but, but uh, essentially any human within a safe zone, that robot won't touch them and, uh, they need to be able to trust that the robot won't uh, go out of their way to hurt them. Yeah, because I remember in that instance, it was somebody kind of working in tandem with a robot in a more industrial setting. But yeah, like understanding that if they walk into the room, that operations have to change a little bit. So yeah, I mean, it has a large standing bunch of implications. Yeah, I don't know. I just get really geeky about robot stuff. It's it's pretty cool. I had a, <laughs> had a colleague who was really into robots and... Uh, I, I I should peg her for for her thoughts on this, but um, yeah, I I love this this type of research and and this field. I it it's just promising. I can't. I just want my own C three PO. Is that is that too much to ask for? 
I don't think it's too much to ask for, but if Disney keeps doing this kind of research, you're going to get a more advanced C-3PO with, you know, bendable elbows and everything. I don't care. I, I don't want that. I, want, I just want a C-3PO that can hand me objects, hand me my comm link so I can, you know, save Luke from the trash compactor. That's all. That's all I want. That's all I want. <laughs> Simple pleasures. That's all right. Good. All right. Why don't we get into this last story here? All right, so wrapping up this week, so Facebook is facing questions of its data handling following reports that research firm Cambridge Analytica improperly gained access to the personal data of more than 50 million Facebook users. Further, Facebook shares, shares like stock shares, dropped about 6% after the Federal Trade Commission announced that it's investigating the company's data practices in wake of Cambridge Analytica's leak of 50 million users' information. Further, the FTC requires that Facebook notify its users and receive explicit permission before sharing personal data beyond specified privacy settings. So, Nick, this this has been all over the news. It's a it's a, definitely a big deal. I mean, it's a large breach in data. But I was going to ask you a question here, and everybody on listening to the show, forgive my ignorance. But how is it that it seems in a lot of the stories that I read that Cambridge Analytica is kind of not as much on the hook as Facebook is? Yeah, I don't know. Because uh, they I, gained access to this stuff, like not through legitimate means. They didn't call you yeah. know, Zuckerberg up and say, hey, could you toss us some of your data? They, they took it. Yeah. So that's that's the part that I've been confused on a bunch. I mean, I know that Facebook is huge. Uh, they have a, a giant shareholding and just so hands in so many different projects and hands in so many people's data. Uh, but I, I don't know. I wanted to throw that out there. No, I agree. Look, like, here's the thing. We, this has been a developing story for weeks and we haven't been covering it partly because we wanted to see how everything panned out, but also because we wanted to make sure we got all the details. So shall we go over what we know about this thing? So yeah, what we know is that Cambridge Analytica basically, the, the issue is that Cambridge Analytica took data from not only your uh, profile, but also all of your friends' profiles that you are friends with on Facebook. And they took this data and they made voting profiles of people who are more likely to vote for Trump. And then they targeted those people with ads. That's my understanding of it. Is there anything else we need to add to that? No, I, th- I think that's a pretty good synopsis of really what's happened. Pretty good recap. Okay, so yeah. that's that's what's going on. Now, the ethical, moral issue with this is not that they got your data, because theoretically, you consented to that. The issue is that they got access to your friend's data, who did not consent to that, and then they then acted on that and built these profiles based on that. So I think that's where the big issue is, right? And and I'm with you. I don't understand why Facebook is more on the hook than this, than uh, Cambridge Analytica. Maybe it's the fact that, you know, Facebook didn't take the right steps to ensure that this type of thing couldn't happen. Um, these people basically scraped all your friends' data and uh, and went from there. But why was that something that was possible in the first place, I guess? And I think that's why people are up in arms about Facebook right now. I, and, you know, I can agree with the being up in arms about it happening, but at the same time, it, and this is going to sound super crass and there will be a lot of people that disagree with me, but how in the how is Facebook's 
supposed to know before something like this happened that it was possible. I mean, I, I don't know what it's like on the inside of Facebook. I don't have any friends that work there. I don't know anybody that works in their data analytics departments or cybersecurity areas. But I have to imagine that they're, they weren't really doing anything super nefarious in the way they were designing their product. Um, now, I mean, they they already, you know, use your data to to target you pretty harsh, pretty epically, it seems, with different content and stuff like that and advertisements. Um, but I really think the bigger deal here is, is that it's such a big breach of data and the way that it was done. And, and, I, and I, I get why you've got the FTC kind of going after them because, I mean, we're we're in we don't talk a lot about this on the show but we're in a pretty heated political climate both here in the United States and kind of the prospect across the world so it's something definitely that needs to be handled uh, but again I'm not sure that Facebook is completely to blame in all of this yeah I I get where you're coming from I think there's other factors going on here right when it rains it pours we found out uh, I think it was last week or the week before that Facebook not only does this, right? They don't, they not only allow other thing, other uh, applications or whatever to, to scrape your friend's data, but they have been, you know, monitoring your cell phone data for years and using that data in targeted advertisements. And so again, when it rains, it pours, I think there's just a lot against Facebook right now that, is all coming out at once and it just is bad news for them. You know, I mean, make of it what you will. I think whatever comes out of this though, is just that there are a big, big implications for how we treat data. And it's, it's an important conversation that we need to have as a society about how we treat our data because a, a lot of young people see it as an extension of themselves. They see their online presence as, um, as sort of connected as, as their physical presence is. So it's, it's important to talk about. Yeah. Cause you definitely don't want to become, unless there's a reason to, but you don't want to become super afraid of using the internet because it's brought so many great things and connected people in such a way that we were never, was never possible before. I know Facebook is a giant part of that movement too. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, at, at the end of the day, the only thing that comes out of this is, is more security measures for how our data can be collected, used um, and disseminated across companies. The hard part is getting it actually implemented. Cause I, I've seen a bunch of articles come out about this surrounding this controversy about like what Facebook can do design wise right will they ever be able to regain your trust who knows but they could do these like five things to, sh to actually show you like this is the data that we have on you should you be allowed should we be allowed to use it do you have any problems with it and being able to take it down i mean i think those things are useful but ultimately this is getting back at that same theme that i think we've seen for gosh, it might be over a year now of the importance of cybersecurity when it comes to, you know, hacks, security breaches, things like this, where data can be stolen and used to kind of manipulate a political system. Like it's, it's just so much to try and even take in and swallow. I can't even, I can't even really fathom where the steps are to go from here or what people can do to move forward. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's, I, it's, I feel we we talk on a podcast weekly, Blake, about human factor stuff and and implications for the field. 
I honestly don't know where this is going to go. I honestly have no idea. And, you know, it's it's really, I, I always feel like I have something to say. But this one just kind of left me speechless. Like, I, I just, I, I just don't know, right? There's, we know a lot of the story, but what happens now, I guess, is the question. And it's not something that we can answer. I mean, potentially human factors people could play a role in this, right? Like if, if we design something to be more transparent to users about where their data is going and, and what their data is ultimately doing and feeding, I think that's important, but you know, this is just one platform. We have so much data out there right now. The theme of this show is like data, right? Like there's all this data that's out there and available and people can use it against you and it sucks, but that's the world that we live in now. And how do we design to protect the consumer? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, really, I think from from like platforms like ours or anybody actually working in a human factors field that has to deal with kind of the data with or even works with like data scientists, I think having that conversation with people that are really involved in the back end data analytics and how it transfers through APIs or how it's used within services, I think like talking and understanding it better from like from an outsider being like the human factors engineer looking in is a great way to go. But also too, I think for the everyday consumer, it's important to start really understanding that this is a problem and it can, it can affect you in a, in ways that you don't, you wouldn't even really begin to fathom like this Cambridge Analytica whole process of, you know, basically swing, potentially swinging an entire election based on profiles and targets targeting that they had produced from Facebook friends or, but even something simple as understanding what kind of data your the websites you go to every day are collecting from you, um, why you're seeing targeted ads that you're seeing, where that's coming from, just just an overall consumer awareness, I think is the is another way to really start at this. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. I don't. I just it really depresses me that like so much it's just it sucks it sucks we're in a sucky situation and the best we can do is just try to be aware and if you're designing something right now or or you know being involved in a process that directly affects somebody think about what data you're collecting on them and what kind of implications that has going forward i guess that's the moral of the story for us as as human factors practitioners right it's like that's that's all we can say is this is something that you have to be mindful of and People are pissed and it sucks. It, it It's just not an ideal situation because, you know, a platform that a lot of people use, this happened to that, that platform, right? And so it, it just sucks. It sucks. Um, yeah. Do you have any closing thoughts on this one, Blake? Because I kind of want to talk about some feel-good stuff. Yeah. The only closing thought I have is, and I, I do this all the time with things that happen to me in real life, so maybe this will help, but... When it comes to the, this whole data thing with with Facebook or wherever it's going to start coming out, because I, I have a feeling this is not the first thing that we're going to hear. Oh no! From this company, I think it's going to keep keep coming. Um, understanding that it sucks and feeling that and acknowledging that in your own mind is is one thing for sure. But start thinking about how you can learn from it. 
And I know that like a lot of us don't have any role in what's happened, but start really paying attention to articles that tell you how you can protect yourself or protect your friends or that kind of stuff. I mean, always just look for ways to get around it feeling like it sucks so much. That's, yeah. that's kind of all I have. Okay. Well, what do you say we, we see what's going on with Reddit? Let's do it. It came from... It came from... It came from Reddit. Yeah, this is the part of the show where we search all over Reddit to bring you topics the community is talking about. So any subreddit's fair game, as long as it relates to the field of human factors and encourages discussion among the community. So that's a pretty wide swath, but we're gonna we're gonna take we're gonna take it. All right. So here's what I think, Blake. I think we're gonna go with one this time. All right, Nick. Which one would you like? With one. We're, we're going to go with one. That's what I'm saying. I think we should just go oh, with one. Oh, yeah. Go with one and do one. Gotcha. We're going with one and we're doing one. Okay. So let me read this here. So how much of your time do you spend doing UX design or research versus managing stakeholders? So this person, this is Flaming Robot on the user experience subreddit. So this person asked this about a year ago, is is uh, there a career like UX design, but without having to talk to business people and stakeholders all the time? Um, they got some in- interesting answers and definitely worth reading. Uh, but they've realized now that part of the reason I was asking, I'm reading his thumb now. I've realized now that part of the reason I was asking that is a huge part of my time in the agency I work at is taken up with stakeholder management. Um I probably spend 50% of my time in meetings or presentations with stakeholders or clients uh, or prepping for those meetings or presentations. 25% of my time doing other admin stuff and 25% or less of my time doing user testing and actual design of interfaces. My frustration with this is that from the fact that research and design work is the only thing I love doing. So I wish that was at least 60% of my time. Is that a normal ratio for the industry? What, What would you say it is for your jobs? Okay, Blake. Uh, let's dive into this. I'm curious. I want your thoughts first. Yeah. So this, this one's tough for me to answer a little bit because it's definitely always going to be part of your job, especially if you're doing UX design or if you, if you're, if, if you're a solo person doing design and research in a company, you're always going to be interacting with stakeholders, trying to manage them. And also, business people now when when i hear the word business people i'm not just thinking ceos i'm thinking kind of your product manager somebody who's overseeing you directly but also like interacting with other product teams and stuff like that i mean the the design or the research or putting that kind of stuff into action is not going to be a 100 percent of the time job um and i i don't know maybe it's it maybe it's from my past experiences experiences at different companies like helping to run a specific department or when I was working in contracting or even freelance work I mean a lot of it was managing expectations of your stakeholders um, and it, it was part of the job that I found it's sometimes frustrating and I probably can see where where this guy's coming from but a lot of times it was also very rewarding because it was these people that were seeing the value of the work you were doing like sometimes it wouldn't you wouldn't be able to see the direct connection to users because it's something that you did the user research you implemented what you what you found and the product had to be shipped at that point and so you're really only getting feedback based off of the stakeholder that you work for or the CEO that you're under um, so I don't know. I, d- I think that is about a normal ratio from my experience. Definitely in the 
kind of trying to implement the user experience design process from research design to front end development. In my case, that's I saw much more of that. Um, it was probably an even split in terms of the work that I was doing, but the day to day was really talking to a product manager, dealing with their stakeholder needs, uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, and even in my more permanent positions where I worked at, it was a, especially working in the startup world, it was a lot of many managing expectations across teams, uh, and then finding time to do the work you needed to do, which was the actual design or trying to put up a experiment together and actually find users. So that that's probably kind of been my experience. So Nick, I'm definitely interested to hear your side of the coin. Yeah. So I will say that something like this is about average. So I, I don't know if I spend 50% of my time. I probably spend my, my spread is probably more 25, uh, 25 with, you know what? No, I probably spend less with the user. I probably spend like 10% of my time with the user, 10 to 20, uh, which is unfortunate, right? But you have to deal with the cards that you're dealt. I spend probably about 30 to 40 of my time with stakeholders, and I spend the rest of my time doing analyses and uh, design work and and, and uh, all that stuff. So um, I will say it depends on it depends oh god there it is again it depends on what kind of field that you're in right if you have easy access to your users then yes this this is not the most ideal situation right ideally you'd have access to users and you can just kind of test things rapidly but you're also forgetting I'm maybe you're not forgetting, but it it's a very critical part of our job as the mediator between the the stakeholders and the users because you are not only trying to please the stakeholders, you're trying to design the best thing you can for the users, and you are the advocate for the users when communicating with the stakeholders. So in a way, you are their voice. And you are their representative when you're interacting with them. So it's good that you're spending more time with them because then they can start to see the user perspective on things and they understand that the system may or may not be meeting the needs of them. Um, and I, I think it's I think it's good that you spend more time with the stakeholders, honestly. Uh, it just kind of it, it provides you a better opportunity to communicate. And that's a big part of your job as a human factors engineer or a UX person or whatever you're doing. Um, honestly, I feel like that's the part that school doesn't really teach you how to do is that communication piece. And it's unfortunate. I think schools should start doing that. Right. I don't know. How do you feel about that, Blake? Man, if there was a course, or, or I don't know if, if I could recommend to anybody in school, that's like either getting their masters and human factors or get, getting some kind of background and user experience design or research, like seek out courses that are focused on management or taking some, like a few business courses to like get an understanding of how just basic business works. Because I, I totally agree, Nick. I think that, and this is going to put me on a soapbox. So everybody get ready. And I apologize ahead of time, but I really think that a lot of programs just, they focus so heavy and again, this is my experience, but they focus very heavily on, on a little bit of methodology and a lot of theory that's related to psychology, which can be super useful. Um, but at the same time, like the, the stuff that's very applicable, like how to communicate effectively with different parties or working cross-functionally across teams, like I did not get enough of that. Um, I was actually really lucky and got a little bit of experience working with 
specifically development students and uh, computer scientists in my program. So they gave me a little insight into how to kind of harness those relationships and how to communicate effectively with them. But as like Dick said, it's, it is a major part of the job, whether you're in HF or in, you're in UX, like communicating on behalf of the user and being their advocate in the room that may have, you know, more, maybe focusing more on business intent when you're there to kind of defend, um, you know, usability and accessibility of content or services. So I definitely think it should be something built into programs. Uh, but if you're, you're in the thick of it right now, try seeking out either some, some, some something that'll help you kind of get better with communication across like business stakeholders. Sir, sir, could you please get off of your soapbox? <laughs> I can't help it, man. It's so important. <laughs> I know it really is. It really is because, like you said, I mean, most most programs are are grounded in this sort of theoretical background, right? They, and that's fine. That's fine. You have to have that understanding to be able to do the jobs that you want to do. But I, I absolutely, and maybe that's the importance of internships, right? If you're in a if you're in a program right now and are thinking about doing an internship, I definitely think it's worth it because you do get that business perspective side of things, right? You, you get to interact with people that you, you don't get that training in school. It's just not something that you can, you can teach it in school, but the practice is really where it gets you. All right, man. I think, I think we're done for the day. We've done it. Another Human Factors Cast episode. <laughs> We've done it. <laughs> We've done it. That's it for today, everyone. Let us know what you guys think of the stories this week. Did you like them? Did you hate them? Let us know. If you have any suggestions for topics or news stories that you want us to cover, you can follow us all over social media, or you can join the discussion in our Slack. Like I said, link is in our show notes, and wherever you can find us all over social media. Uh, you can find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. We're at H Factors Podcast. Be sure to check out our SoundCloud. You can also leave us a comment over there, or you can send us an email at humanfactorscast at gmail.com. Leave us a voicemail at 901-646-1432. That's 901-646-1HFC. If you like what we're doing, you can support us on our Patreon at patreon.com slash humanfactorscast. Get access to a bunch of different new stuff. We just revamped it. Please, please, please consider going to check that out and support us. If you can't do that, just like, subscribe, review us on Apple Podcasts, the Google Play Store, or whatever your favorite podcast directory is. We can't grow unless you let other people know about us. So, you know, word of mouth is our friend. So if you could just let a friend know about Human Factors Cast, that's great too. And of course, you can always reach us at our home on the web, humanfactorscast.com. I want to thank Mr. Blake Arnsdorf for hanging out with me today. Where can our where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about robotic arms? Oh, if you want to talk about robotic arms, hot dog banter, or anything you're interested in, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me across social media at Don't Panic UX. Don't Panic UX. Get off your soapbox. As for me, ah. I, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning into Human Factors Cast. I'm going to stop using the fader now. Actually, you know what? I'm going to use it one more time for the outro, which is... It depends! Sir, please get off of your soapbox. Please. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. 
humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.